access to publicly funded data, an AI-powered wingman to help you win in Pokemon Go, and Google's wide and deep model for scalable recommender systems. Plus a lot more on This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hello and welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI, the podcast where I bring you the week's most interesting and important stories from the worlds of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm Sam Charrington, and today is Friday, July 15th, 2016. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to say that this week's podcast is sponsored by Cloudera, organizers of the Rango Conference, which is coming up in San Francisco on July 28th. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know who Cloudera is. So this week and next, I'll just share a couple of quick reasons why you should consider attending the Wrangle event. So here goes. What I'm personally most excited about is the event's focus on data science problem solving, methodology, and best practice. As you know, conferences often tend to extremes where the focus will either be on academic research, nothing wrong with that, or presenting a ton of how I did thing X with tool Y stories. What the Wrangle organizers have tried to do, on the other hand, is ask speakers to report on the biggest challenges they faced and how they overcame them. So you get to hear and learn from a ton of great war stories. And as if that's not enough, I'm going to be there learning, meeting folks, and recording stuff for the podcast. So if you come and would like to meet up, definitely give me a holler. Go check out the event at wrangleconf.com, W-R-A-N-G-L-E-C-O-N-F.com. And if you decide to register, use the code COMMUNITY, you might need to do that in all caps, for 20% off. Before we jump into this week's show, a quick reminder that I'm still collecting interest in a possible email newsletter I'm considering launching to share all of the interesting stories that I come across each week that I don't get to discuss on the podcast. If this is something you'd be interested in receiving, please let me know by signing up at twimmelaicom slash newsletter. If enough people sign up, I'll know there's interest and I'll get the newsletter going. All right, let's get to it. So I want to start off today by revisiting some comments I made last week while discussing the news that Google DeepMind was granted access to a collection of a million eye scan images by the British National Health System. If you recall, one of the questions I asked was whether this data, which was collected by a government-funded public health organization, should instead of being exclusively handed over to a single research organization, rather be made publicly available to all researchers. Well, I wasn't the only person thinking this thought. This week, I came across a really interesting article by Natasha Lomas over on TechCrunch that takes this question a few steps further. While the focus of my question was on data accessibility, a key underlying issue, and one which Natasha really nicely articulates, is the issue of data value. So to be real clear, the issue here is that while Google DeepMind says it will be publishing results from its research, and if you're a regular listener here, you know that this is very likely the case, what they haven't committed to do is to share via open source or otherwise the models that they create as a result of their work. As an example of a likely outcome, or at least a possible outcome, 
Google could turn around and license these models, which are based on public data, to one of the vendors of the eye scanners that are used by physicians for diagnostics. Sure, Google's created these models, but they've been given quite a head start with exclusive or at least first mover access to this data. Another article on the topic in New Scientist magazine paraphrases a University of Pittsburgh eye doctor as saying, DeepMind may get free access to valuable patient data, but the alternative is to keep potential insight locked up in the Moorfields data set, inaccessible to human analysis. You imagine the NHS saying the same thing, but this is obviously a false dichotomy. Who's to say that if the data weren't public, another organization, such as a public university, wouldn't take up the research challenge? Natasha asks a few really good questions in her piece. Namely, why governments and public bodies fail to see the value that's locked up in publicly funded data sets? And if they do see that value, why aren't they coming up with ways to maintain public ownership of these assets? And how could they do so in such a way as to distribute their benefits equally rather than disproportionately rewarding a single company? In her words, the one with the slickest sales pitch. Natasha compares the NHS DeepMind arrangement to other transactions involving the privatization of public resources, suggesting that these amount to uh, a transfer of wealth from citizens to corporate interests. She suggests that we really need to get our act together and demand a debate about who should own the value locked up in our data, and preferably do so before we've handed over any more sets of keys. What occurred to me in thinking a bit more about this is that perhaps one missing piece of the puzzle is a new type of licensing model for data. I'm thinking here of a license that has some viral properties, kind of like the GPL, but whose virality applies to derivative works, where in this case, we specifically mean models created by training on the data. So if you use data licensed under such a license to train your models and then chose to publicize them via services or executables, you would also be obligated to publish the source code for your models. Maybe this is something that an organization like the Open Data Commons might take up. Or maybe it's the dumbest thing you've heard in a really long time. Really, I'm just thinking out loud here. Let me know what you think in the comments to the show notes or over on Twitter, where I'm at Sam Charrington, S-A-M-C-H-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. Our next story is on Pokemon Go and artificial intelligence. Or at least that's what I feel it should be about. But really, there's not much out there to speak of. Or at least I couldn't find much. That is, except a pretty awesome Facebook Messenger bot made by bot platform company Morph.ai. If you haven't been hit by Pokemania, bear with me for a minute. But this is for better or worse, mostly worse, one of the more interesting of the recent batch of bots that I've come across. Basically, this bot is your Pokemon wingman when you're preparing to go to battle at a Pokemon Go gym. You add the bot on Facebook Messenger, and then you can ask it questions like, what type of Pokemon is a pincer? Or, which Pokemon should I use against an Eevee? Or, which are the rock-type Pokemon? 
So Pokemon GoBot is actually pretty good at answering these kinds of questions. I'll definitely give it that. But I couldn't help but think back to the story that I talked about a couple of weeks ago on the article, A Natural Language User Interface is Just a User Interface. And this really prompted me to ask myself, is this really better than a web page or an app? And the more I thought about it, the answer is, I'm just not sure. On the one hand, the questions, as I've stated them above, are pretty wordy and more that I'd want to regularly type out on a phone. But you can kind of reverse engineer the parse tree for the bot pretty easily and just type in shortcuts like electric when you want to know how to beat electric type Pokemon or add the word Pokemon. So for example, type electric Pokemon when you want to know some examples of that type. Plus, while there are a good couple dozen Pokemon Go guide apps in the Play Store, most of them really look like crap. This suggests that while a natural language UI is still a UI, a good natural language UI is easier to make than a good GUI. Or perhaps bad language user interfaces or LUIs are easier to use than bad GUIs. Well, I think I fulfilled my duty to intelligently talk about Pokemon Go on the podcast. And my apologies if you've been trying to avoid the topic. Go Team Instinct. All right, next up, let's jump to this week's business stories. There were a bunch of business stories this week, so I'll try to run through them pretty quickly. First up this week comes from a company called Prisma Labs, who this week released their app, Prisma, that brings generative AI to the masses. Yes, this is an app that allows you to apply filters to your pictures that render them in the style of famous artists like Van Gogh and Picasso. If this sounds familiar, that's because it should. We discussed the paper that this is based on, which is called A Neural Algorithm of Artistic Style, back in the beginning of June, in the same show in which we discussed Google's Magenta project and some other developments in the field of generative artistic AI. The examples I've seen of the Prisma app look pretty cool, and I'd love to play with the app personally, but they've only got iOS and I've only got Android, so we've reached a bit of an impasse. There was an interesting Twitter debate about the broader significance of the app, suggesting that it's perhaps the biggest standalone consumer success of deep learning to date. That may be the case, but I tend to think that the deep learning-based features in Google Photos, for example, are more impactful for a lot more people. At the end of the day, though, the average consumer has no idea that what Prisma is doing here is any more complicated than applying a typical Instagram feature. And actually, I think that's the beauty of what they've built. And I expect to see more of that, actually a lot more of that, in the future. This week also saw several financial transactions in the machine learning and AI space eBay announced the acquisition of Israel and San Francisco-based SalesPredict, a company that applied machine learning to challenges faced by sales, marketing, and support organizations. Actually, these guys were a client of mine, and I'm super excited for them. According to the company's CEO, Yaron Zakayor, 
The Sales Predict team will now shift gears a bit to focus on helping give eBay sellers more information about the value of their items to allow them to sell more. eBay, in fact, has been on a bit of an AI buying spree, acquiring another startup, Expert Maker, back in May. Another machine learning company, Seattle-based Amplero, announced this week their $8 million Series A. These guys are actually focused on a similar space to Sales Predict, but with a B2C angle as opposed to B2B. Now, all of the press I've read about this company, as well as the company's own website, left me a bit intrigued, but also a bit sad and confused. The VentureBeat article about them, for example, says the company's product uses, quote, machine learning to test thousands of marketing permutations constantly, ensuring that the right message is delivered to the right users at the right time and via the right channel. The solution then chooses the winning permutations, working in concert with your existing marketing technology stack to make the relevant changes on the fly. But really, what the heck is a marketing permutation? It sounds like they're talking about testing marketing messaging, which we've been doing via AB or multivariate testing for a long time. Perhaps these guys should win the AI Washing of the Month Award. Okay, side note, should that be a thing? I think it'd kind of be fun. But actually, there's no way these guys would beat the beer company we talked about last time. Anyway, that said, the CEO, a guy named Ali Downs, has 29 patents in areas like Bayesian prediction and statistical estimation. So chances are that this is more of an issue of confusing marketing than the lack of a technically sophisticated product. Also, UK-based machine learning startup 5AI raised a $2.7 million seed round to develop an autonomous vehicle platform. Final note in business, an update on the AI culture wars in Silicon Valley, which has apparently turned into the AI publicity wars in Silicon Valley. Yes, all the powers that be in the Valley are now in an all-out race to get their AI story out there. Last week, I talked about the exclusive that Microsoft gave to The Verge. Well, the big story this week was all about Facebook's Big Sur, which was covered by The Verge, MIT Technology Review, Mashable, CNET, and a bunch more. If you saw any of these stories, you probably wondered what the news was. And if you read any of these stories, you were probably still wondering what the news was. And I can assure you, absolutely nothing. There was no news. What happened was Facebook invited some journos up for a press tour of their Prineville, Oregon data center. And the result was a bunch of stories about the company's quote-unquote massive AI brain. In this case, it's hard to tell if it was Facebook or the press doing the AI washing here. But the former did make it a point to talk about Big Sur, the server that they designed with Quanta and NVIDIA, the design of which was open-sourced and contributed to the Open Compute Project back in December of last year. Okay, tech news after the jump. I've mentioned in the past my excitement about cloud-based machine learning particularly for cognitive services, such as those offered by the likes of Google, Microsoft, and IBM. Well, add Seattle-based Algorithmia to the fray. 
The company, which launched in 2013 and has been offering an online marketplace for algorithmic web services, announced this week's support for the CAFE, TensorFlow, and Theano deep learning frameworks. With this new support in place, third-party developers can upload trade models to Algorithmia, where they can be used by that company's customers on a public or pay-per-call basis. The company seeded the market with 16 of their own open-source implementations of popular research papers, including Google's InceptionNet and Parsi McParseface, based on TensorFlow, a real estate and illustration tagger based on CAFE, and an image stylizer based on the Theano-based Artsy Networks project for folks that want to build the next Prisma. Now, if you hear about all these deep learning frameworks and you want to know which one you should learn, and you're satisfied by making your choice based on popularity alone, you might find a recent tweet by Kiris lead Francois Cholet interesting. He periodically ranks the major frameworks based on GitHub activity and tweets the results. If you want the quick summary, TensorFlow is kicking butt. It's leading in every area but GitHub issues, and that's probably a good thing. I'll link to the tweet in the show notes. Next up, Justin Johnson, a PhD student at Stanford, posted a new GitHub project to benchmark a bunch of different convolutional neural network architectures on different GPUs and the Intel Xeon, with and without CUDA support. If you're not living in the deep learning for image recognition world, it's probably helpful for us to first review the different CNNs he looked at. The first is AlexNet, the eight-layer network described in the landmark 2012 paper by researchers Krzyzewski, Sutskever, and Hinton, which really ushered in the deep learning age after outperforming the field of conventional competitors in the 2012 ImageNet competition. The next are various flavors of VGG, the model that won the ImageNet challenge in 2014 and was described by Simonian and Zisserman in their paper. And of course, he includes ResNet, a model first proposed by Microsoft researchers in late 2015 and whose variants still represent the state-of-the-art in image recognition. The ResNet paper has been on my reading list for a while now, and I may have mentioned it previously on the show. If you really want to understand deep learning for image recognition, you could do a lot worse than just sitting down to understand and implement these three papers. Anyway, Justin's results were pretty interesting, if not unexpected. Now, if you don't happen to have a monster box at home or in the office, but you still want to do deep learning on the cheap, you may want to take a look at Zohar Jackson's AWS SpotBot project on GitHub. It automates finding, launching, and configuring GPU spot instances on Amazon EC2. Okay, let's finish up tech with a couple more quick notes. If you're a Python fan, you certainly know the Jupyter Notebook. Well, at the SciPy conference this week, the Jupyter team presented that tool's next evolution called Jupyter Lab. I haven't watched the video, but the screenshot looks really slick. It looks like a full in-browser IDE for data analysis. Check it out. And if you're a Java user, well, sorry to hear that. I mean, there's something for you too in the recent release of version 4.0 of the Deep Learning for J framework. Headliner features are multi-GPU support for standalone and Spark use, 
the addition of QDNN support, and a bunch of new data structures, algorithms, and native operations. All right, let's move on. Next up, research. First, a bit of an admission. I laugh to myself when I think back to asking you guys whether I should just review one research paper each week or several. I mean the hubris. Keeping up with research papers is really hard. So bear with me if I don't get to as many as you or I might like. Actually, my paper reading list is getting ridiculous, and I'd really like to play with implementations of some of these at some point as well. One of the papers I've been meaning to look into recently is the Wide and Deep Learning paper published by Google Research a couple of weeks ago. It turns out that the paper is both short and very much on the applied side of the spectrum, so it's relatively easy reading. There's also a lot of supporting material between the Google Research blog, the TensorFlow docs, and the video they created, though I found that reading the paper helped me understand the video as opposed to the other way around. The background here is that a team from Google Research developed a recommender model that combines the best aspects of logistic regression and neural nets and found that it outperformed either approach individually by a small but significant percentage. The basic idea is this. Linear models are great. They're easy to use, easy to scale, and easy to understand. They're also pretty good at memorizing the relationships between individual features especially when you use some simple feature engineering tricks to emphasize those relationships. These types of feature engineering tricks, which are really very commonly used, result in a lot of derived features, and so the linear models that use them are called, quote-unquote, wide learning in this paper. Now, for all their advantages, what linear models aren't really good at is generalizing. Some examples of the kinds of generalizations that they're not good at making are identifying feature relationships that either don't occur frequently in the training data, that arise based on word relationships that can be captured via embeddings, or that arise via transitive relationships between features. If you're not familiar with embeddings, embeddings essentially map words and terms to a vector space so that related terms are closer. This can be used to allow a system like a neural net to figure out that if you search your food app for fried chicken, you're more likely to want chicken and waffles than chicken fried rice, even though chicken is the common term across both potential results. And an example of a transitive relationship is something like U.S. users who use Netflix like Hulu and Hulu users like Yelp, so U.S. users might like Yelp. Now, you can try to help your linear models see some of these relationships by creating a set of higher-order derived features, but doing so is pretty labor-intensive. This is where neural nets, or what the paper unsurprisingly calls deep models, come into play. They're much better at generalizing and rooting out unexpected feature combinations that have predictive value. But on the other hand, they're also prone to overgeneralization, and they don't do a good job at memorizing specific feature combinations that are 
infrequently seen in training data, something that a linear model can do pretty handily. So this paper proposes a jointly trained model that combines both wide and deep learning. By jointly trained, we mean that this isn't an ensemble model where we're training a linear model and a neural net separately and then choosing the best prediction among the two. That doesn't really help us here because for ensemble to work, we need both models to be independently accurate. That would mean we would need to do all the feature engineering we're trying to avoid for the linear model. Rather, by training the wide and deep models together, they can each do what they're best at while keeping the overall model complexity low. It's actually pretty surprising how much system level implementation detail this paper packs into four pages. I was left feeling like I actually have a pretty good understanding of how the recommendation system for the Google Play Store was designed and how it's able to make recommendations against a 1 million item app catalog using over 500 billion training examples to serve each request in about 10 milliseconds under a peak load of 10 million app scoring requests per second. In addition to publishing the paper, Google also open-sourced their TensorFlow implementation of the model with a high-level API for wide and deep models called a DNN Linear Combined Classifier. All right, I hope you enjoy learning about this paper as much as I enjoyed reading it. Before we jump over to projects, a few quick notes. In recent weeks, we've talked about the ICML and CVPR conferences. This week, Leo Tam posted a blog calling out his impressions from both and his top 10 research papers from each. Check it out for a concise look into what you missed at these conferences. Next, this week was the IJCAI conference, the International Joint Conference on AI. I haven't seen much by way of summaries or highlight posts, so I don't have much to say about it. But if you see anything good, send it my way and I'll be sure to share it. Finally, if you're looking for a contextualized view into a bunch of interesting and important research papers and how they all fit together, I think you'll like Javier Ametrian's presentation from last week's Data Science Summit. His talk was focused on providing the audience with a reminder of all the problems for which traditional MI is still state-of-the-art relative to the new hotness deep learning. And he cites relevant papers for each area. The slides are up on SlideShare. The link is in the show notes, and I highly recommend it. Okay, on to projects. I came across a bunch of really cool projects this week. I'll be briefly talking about a couple of them here, plus a bonus pointer to a ton more. So, first off, what do you do if you're an NVIDIA employee and you're tired of your neighbor's cats hanging out on your front lawn? Well, if you're Bob Bond, you build a deep learning-based controller for your sprinkler system and train it to recognize cats. Bob's project used an IP camera to feed images to a cafe-based deep learning model pre-trained on ImageNet data and running on an NVIDIA Jetson TX1 system. This talks to his sprinkler system to turn on the water when an object identified as a cat or dog makes its way onto his lawn. Very cool. He's got a great write-up on his blog and the code is up on GitHub. The next project that I want to bring to your attention is a cool little project that shows you how to control a small Raspberry Pi based robot called a GoPyGo Go 
with TensorFlow to enable simple autonomous driving. There's a neat video up on YouTube showing the GoPyGo autonomously navigating a simple course, and the code that does it is dead simple. The entire project consists of just three Python scripts, a data collection script that is used for training the model, a server script that receives images from the GoPyGo's camera and outputs labels based on whether the robot should continue forward, turn right, or turn left, and a client script that runs on the bot that captures uh, an image from the camera, sends it to the server, gets an output command, and executes the command on the robot. In my view, the simplicity of this project really shows off the power of deep learning and TensorFlow in particular. Finally, if you're looking for more project or research ideas and you're interested in natural language processing, check out the project reports written by students in Richard Socher's Deep Learning for NLP course at Stanford, also known as CS224D, which were posted this week. There are some pretty interesting projects, including several on sentiment analysis, political bias detection, playlist creation, video annotation, and much more. There are about 100 reports in total, so there's sure to be something for everyone. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. A couple of quick items before we go. First off, I want to thank Cloudera for sponsoring this episode of the show. Definitely show them some love and make sure you visit wrangleconf.com to learn more about the upcoming Wrangle Conference. Also, don't forget to visit twimlai.com slash newsletter to express interest in the email newsletter I'm working on. There's also a feedback field on that form, and I've been really getting a kick out of reading your comments. Please keep them coming. The notes for this show will be up on twimlai.com slash nine, and you'll find links to all of the resources I mentioned right there. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you next week.